Welcome everyone, you are listening to Do We Like Murder? This is a segment of the Long Overdue Podcast, a production of the Decatur Public Library in Texas. I'm Chris, and we have Denise and Dawn. Hello. And we're going to be talking about murder and murder-like things. Murder-like things. (laughs) Things that may or may not be murder. Yeah. I guess we'll find out when Denise talks about her book. Yep. So I, I should put a disclaimer pretty early on in regarding my book yes attention listeners yes for this disclaimer it it was very graphic and so some of that graphicness may come out in Mm -hmm. talking about this book the book you read was the hillside stranglers oh two of a kind the hillside stranglers okay and it's pretty brutal it was the most disturbing book i've ever read that's saying a lot yeah we've read a lot of these yeah (laughs) and some of them were like oh that was yeah. So, so viewer or listener discretion advised. Definitely discretion advised on this one. Not that all of them are not. Yeah. Murder, murder is not oh, yeah, exactly we, the friendliest topic. Yeah. We mm-hmm. talk about all kinds of things that involve those crimes. Yes. So. Yes. All right. Well, then I think we should save yours for last. Yeah. All right. That works for me. <laughs> I mean, I guess, so that, I guess that essentially that's just saying that you're not going to sugarcoat it. You're just no. going to tell it like it is. Yes. Yes, I will tell it like it is. Like it was. Like it was. Yeah. All right, so we're starting with Denise. I'll go. I don't think mine's going to be very long. What did you read? I read Burned, A Story of a Murder and the Crime That Wasn't by Edward Humus. So the this crime happened in 1989. It was April 9th of 1989. Um. And a young mother named Joanne Parks put her three children to bed. And she woke up in the middle of the night uh, because she heard her children screaming and she smelled smoke. And the whole house was on fire. Oh. And so she ran out of the house and went to the neighbors to try to get help, have them call, call for help. So a little bit about where they were living at. They were living in a place that was actually a two-car garage that was transformed into a apartment. Mm. Okay. Um, in Bell, California. So this place was pretty much that. The rooms were small. This was kind of cobbled together. It was a garage mm-hmm. that they added another room to and called it an apartment. Okay. So they, her and her family, her husband, Ron Parks, herself, and her three children, um, Ronald Edward Parks III, who they called Ronnie, he was four, um, Roanne, who was two, and Jessica Amber Parks, who was one. So they all moved into this tiny little place, um, they didn't have a whole lot of money. Ron, her husband, had lost his job. And this is just kind of where they ended up. They ended up there because their other apartment that they had lived in had a cop fire. Really? Yeah. So, 
all of these things, you know, this is where they were. Mm-hmm. Um, the husband had gotten his job back, and so he was at work. Mm-hmm. And then the fire happened, and she ran out of the house and went to her neighbor's. And her neighbors, um, they had just moved in, so they didn't really know her, but they had already met and so on. Mm-hmm. So the woman that was living there, you know, was with her, and she was, you know, of course, upset and crying, and her children were in this burning house. And her neighbor runs in there to try to save the kids, but he doesn't get very far. Like, he makes it into the house, but he can't actually get further back in there. Mm-hmm. Um, the way it was set up was the master bedroom was the way to get into the house. Like, that was the front. Okay. Because, again, this was a two-car garage that they turned into something. Yeah. So, like, it, the layout didn't really make a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other two bedrooms. And so, he didn't get very far. Like, he made it into her room and then couldn't get any further in because the fire was so hot. Mm-hmm. And the there was smoke everywhere, and like, and it caught super fast. And so, by the time the police and the firefighters get there, like he's coming out, he doesn't have the kids. Hmm. Um, they can hear the kids screaming oh, and my asking for help. Um, a nineteen-year-old boy that they called Tuxedo Man because he was in full formal tuxedo he had just gone to an event Mm -hmm. and he was going home and he saw the the fire and he thought it was actually a family friend of theirs an elderly family friend so he rushed over there to to help Mm -hmm. um he could hear the children and he grabbed a fire hose and was trying to trying to get in there Mm -hmm. um there was a neighbor that saw one of the police officers go around back try to try to get into the house no one could actually get in. Like, they tried mm-hmm. to get in, and, and they couldn't. By the time the firefighters got there and put out the fire, um, the children were dead. Wow. Hmm. And so they actually treated this as an accident. They didn't really document anything. They threw a lot of evidence away. Mm-hmm. Um, it looked like an accident to them. Mm-hmm. And so when they got one of the fire investigators to come in, when he went to go look, this was already several days after the fire, mm-hmm. they were treating it like like an accident. Um, and it looked like that's how it was going to go down, because this was a horrible, horrible accident. Mm-hmm. Except that one of Joanne's friends called the police and said that wasn't an accident she killed those babies (gasps) okay and so then the police immediately shift their focus Mm -hmm. they tell all this to the arson investigator who goes in there and proclaims it a homicide Mm. oh my goodness because he found out that the previous place that they had lived in burned down Mm -hmm. that a friend of hers was claiming that she would give the kids cough syrup so they'd sleep through the night that she had made some comment about how at the previous fire, if her husband Ron hadn't gotten home early, mm-hmm. then the baby Jessica would have died and they could have made some money. <gasps> so further on into the book, you find out that her friend Kathy Dodge, who mm-hmm. made these claims, was really, really just pissed off at Joanne because she thought Joanne stole from her. Oh, my goodness. So that stuff wasn't really true. Mm-mm. Okay. 
she started to backtrack once an actual trial started to happen. She couldn't remember who said what. Maybe it was Ron who had said something about, you know, if Jessica had died, they could have sued. Mm-hmm. She doesn't remember what because they were going to put her on the stand and she became a terrible witness because now she was backtracking. Mm-hmm. So her name fits her. Yeah. Dodge. Dodge. Mm-hmm. She's dodging. She is yep. pretty dodgy. Okay. So Joanne gets convicted of three counts of first degree murder and is sentenced to basically life in prison. She avoids the death penalty mm-hmm. because her attorneys um, try to shift the blame a little on Ron mm-hmm. that they kind of they kind of couldn't decide how to defend. Was it an accident? Mm-hmm. Or did Ron really set everything up so they could sue? Because they did file a lawsuit. Okay. And so she got convicted, but she didn't get the death penalty because some of the jurors thought, you know, mm-hmm. maybe he had something to do with it. Okay. So they basically made her sound like she was a terrible mother. Mm-hmm. That And that's really what she got convicted of was that she was a bad mom. Really? That they thought that she was a bad mom. Huh. A lot of the jurors flat out said that she didn't cry. She, you know, that they just thought that there was something up with her because she wasn't expressing grief the way they thought she should express grief. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, she had to have something to do with it. That's like, tough. Like, it wasn't, yeah. even, it wasn't even the evidence. It was, you're not reacting the way... I would react, mm-hmm. and therefore, there's something wrong with you. Right. One of the things that a lot of the jurors didn't like was that she ran out of the house, didn't run into the burning fire to save her kids. She ran out of the house to get help. So that kind of crossed my mind. Like, what mother would not burn to death with her kids? Right. <laughs> that, yeah. Now, that's the hard part, mm-hmm. because you don't know how bad it was already. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and what she had said originally was that it it was. Like, she got up, opened her bedroom door because she heard her kids screaming, and she couldn't go any further. Like, mm-hmm. there was smoke everywhere. It was There was fire coming at her. Mm-hmm. And so she thought, I need to go get help. Right. And she can't. She go, couldn't get in. Yeah, she couldn't go further into the house. Mm-hmm. And so she, so she went out and, and got help. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that the jurors did not did not like was that while the fire was still going on, the police asked her to come with them to the station so that she could give a statement. Mm-hmm. And she went. Mm-hmm. And they were like, she didn't know if her kids were okay or not okay. And, you know, and she just left. Well, the police officer was con- constantly telling her that everything was going to be fine, that uh-huh. her kids were going to be okay, and to come with him. So they could talk about what happened and what she saw. So she, they could give a, get a statement. Yeah. And that the kids were going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And so she went with them. Thinking that they would be re- she'd be reunited with her kids at the police station. Right. Because he kept telling her everything was going to be okay. And you trust the police and they are authority figures. Mm-hmm. You would go with them. Yes. Mm-hmm. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. Okay. But the jurors didn't like that. They didn't like that she went with the police while... She had no confirmation of whether her kids were okay or not. Hmm. You know, he might have been trying to get her away from there because of what he knew was happening, too. Yeah. It, it seemed pretty obvious that 
those kids were not going to be okay. Yeah. Like, no one could get in. Yeah. Oh. And so. That's just, a, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, well, I mean, I understand kind of what you're saying. Like, would you leave until you actually had eyes on your kids? Or, you know, would you believe the police? Mm-hmm. And so, but they didn't like that that she left. Okay. Even though it was the police telling her that yeah. she needed to come with them. Huh. Okay. Her husband, Ron, is a lot older than her. When they got married, she lied about her age and said that she was 19 when she was, I think, 16. And he was a, was a an adult. <laughs> <laughs> so he knew how old she was, but she lied so they could get married. So they could get married. Gotcha. Okay. And even so, he was he was a lot older than her. Even if she was 19. Even if she was 19. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so they got married. He, of course, promised to take care of her and all that. Um, he was a bum. Really? Yeah. He was he was quite the quite the bum. He, man, if this was a murder, I would have pinned it all on Ron. <laughs> okay. He sounds awful uh-huh like he just sounds awful awful um when the fire happened the police contacted him at work um actually i think it was his what's it called when it's a christian science guy is it a reverend minister spiritual advisor i guess okay uh, it's um so they're christian science <laughs> spiritual advisor yes called ron to tell him that he had to come home, that there was an emergency mm-hmm. and he had to come home. And so Ron does, except that he doesn't go straight to the police station. He goes home to see what's what. And mm-hmm. he just gets out there and he's talking to people on the street, like doesn't go to the police or anything like that. Just talking to people on the street. And he's like, what, what's going on? And someone there in the crowd just tells him that there was a fire and three children died because the parents left the kids alone. Oh, and so he calls his spiritual advisor and, you know, can't get a hold of him because he's at the police station with Joanne. Mm -hmm. Joanne called him and he went over there for support. And so he goes over there to the police station and he sees her and he says, you killed my children. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. With no emotion. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't like, you know, pointing fingers, angry or no, just, you killed my children. Not even wanting to really find out what happened mm-hmm. versus some bypass bystander, I guess. Yeah, it's yeah standing someone there. just standing there watching watching the fire. Not even coming in and say, hey, what happened? What happened? <sighs> yeah. Okay. So. He's blaming her right away uh-huh. for, with no information. Yeah. Mm. And um, when she first went and knocked on her neighbor's door, and the neighbor came out and was holding her back because at some point she did want to break free and go back into the house. Mm-hmm. But it, the police and the jurors and everybody felt that she didn't really try to break free from this woman to, to run into the burning house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so when she was out there with her, the neighbor was out there with her, she mumbled something that the neighbor thought she said, I hope Ronnie Jr. wasn't playing with matches again. 
Oh no! But she couldn't say for sure if that's what she said. But when she asked her, like, "What? What did you say, Joanne?" She she just shook her head, like she wasn't going to repeat what she just said. Yeah. And so, their spiritual advisor had did tell the police that he had a couple of talks with Ronnie Jr., who was four. He apparently liked to wake up in the middle of the night and go watch TV while everybody else was asleep. Mm-hmm. And occasionally, he had to have a little talk with him about playing with matches. Wow. Um. But it didn't really seem like it was a fire that was set. Mm-hmm. At least that's kind of the where they were going in the beginning. Yeah, was that it didn't it didn't seem like that's what happened. It looked like the uh, overused extension cord just couldn't take it anymore and sparked a fire. Okay, mm-hmm. and so all of that is going on. Mm-hmm. They get an arson investigator to go in and take a look to see what if it was accidental or not. Mm-hmm. The police have informed him of all these things that the people have been saying, that what her husband said and all that. So he goes in there thinking, oh, this woman's a murderer. Mm-hmm. And so he goes in there and he basically just finds things to support his bias. Okay. And so... They convict her. And she, her trial was in 1993. She was 26 years old at the time. And she was found guilty of killing her three small children. And so what had happened at her previous house was they were living there. And you couldn't have more than one thing running at the same time. So was it in a house or an apartment? Um, I think it was kind of the same situation. Something that they called an apartment that okay. was not really, okay, you know, something that was just kind of made for people to live in that mm-hmm. was not that wasn't its intention. All right. And so they were living there. They, you couldn't have more than one thing running at at a time. Mm-hmm. So if you <laughs> if you had your refrigerator plugged in and decided to turn on the TV, all the electricity would go out. Nice. They repeatedly called the landlord about it. There was documentation where they repeatedly called the landlord and he kept saying that he would go send someone out there. He'd send someone out there. Never did. Mm -hmm. Ron was, um, he was a military trained electrician. Okay. So at some point he's all like, okay, what if I just fix it? And then, you know, you knock it off my rent or you pay me back or whatever. Sure. You know, because we we can't keep doing this. Mm-hmm. Like our refrigerator can't keep going out because we want to watch TV or yeah. you know whatever. And he was like, no, no, I'll send someone out there. I'll send someone out there. And he didn't. And then one day, um, she smells something mm-hmm. that not really smoke, but she smells something. And so she calls her husband up at work and he tells her, you know, to, um, call 911, have them, someone go out there because it, it sounded like there was some some electrical issue going on in the walls. Okay. So they go out there. Yes, there was an issue. They turned off the power. They told her, do not turn back on the power until it gets fixed. Mm-hmm. And so she's like, okay. So she calls the landlord. They, He's again t- saying, you know, I'll send someone out there. I'll send someone out there. Well, Ron comes home. They turn it up. They turn the power back on because again they can't have the refrigerator mm-hmm. without power. So they turn it on again. They wait a little bit and they're like, okay, well, you know, I don't smell anything now. Everything seems fine. And so he takes the 
the two older children to the park and they're out there and so she's there with the with the baby mm-hmm. and so she's like well you know let's go pick up some chicken and we'll all get together and we'll have a picnic so she takes the baby and goes picks up some chicken and goes to the park and they have a nice little picnic when they come back the house is on fire oh uh, okay and so that was clearly an accident that was documented mm-hmm. you know firefighters went out there and were like yeah don't do that because you know yes this is all shoddy work and so that happened mm-hmm. and so then they end up at an actual apartment complex where that's where she meets kathy dodge okay and so they live right next door to each other um kathy says that you know she didn't really like her all that much but you know they were next door neighbors and she mm-hmm. looked like she needed a friend well uh, from all other accounts they were besties they would spend uh, every day together. They would get together and crochet and knit and, oh my word. you know, it's like, but now she's like, oh, I didn't really like her, but I felt bad for her. Wow. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and they were really good friends and she would tell her things that she hadn't told anybody. Mm-hmm. And so she was talking to her about, you know, a lot of her past traumas and so on. Mm-hmm. And then one day, um, Kathy showed her a money order that she had gotten for $500 for something and so she was super excited about it Mm -hmm. and so she put it in her purse went outside with the kids and then joanne goes out there and you know tells her kids that it's time time to go home Mm -hmm. so when she goes back the money order is gone from her purse and she thinks joanne stole it all right and joanne's like i wasn't the only one there there was two other people that i didn't know okay and so when she was left there alone she was like i'm going home Mm -hmm. because she didn't know these these guys so she was like i'm going home yeah and, but Kathy immediately thought that she stole it. Mm-hmm. And so she knocked on the door, pounded on the door, wanted her money back. And Joanne's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, <laughs> yeah. And so that's where the falling out happened. Okay. And so when this happened and it was reported, she called the police and told them that she was sure that it was, it was murder. Even though she had... No evidence at all other than she was mad at she her. was mad at her. Okay. So she spends a whole lot of time in prison because she was convicted in nineteen ninety three. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until let's see, two thousand fifteen, I wanna say that the innocence project that the california innocence project mm-hmm. got a hold of her file and decided to pursue it the person that sent the letter and sent all the information to the innocence project in california was actually um a retired police arson investigator oh. who had testified on her behalf in the 90s mm-hmm. basically saying this was an accident. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a lot of things going on here that what well, people were trained, the way fire investigators were trained mm-hmm. before to assume that this is arson actually can happen in a natural fire. Okay. And this had happened. Um, she was, I think, about to go to trial when the, like, 93 California wildfires happened. Yes. And all those houses were... Um, 
engulfed in flames. Mm -hmm. And so a bunch of fire investigators went basically to see what they could learn from that. Mm -hmm. And they went into these houses that they knew that a wildfire had had damaged them. Mm -hmm. There was no arson. There was this was a fire that happened, an accidental wildfire. Uh And so they went in and they're like, and what did we see? All kinds of signs of arson. Uh-huh. All the things that you would that you've been taught. If you see this pattern, it means that someone used an accelerant. If you see this, that means this. And wow, it was a natural fire. Hmm. And so he went on like he was testifying on her behalf uh-huh. that the fire investigator basically went in there already knowing all these things that they assumed about her that. She yeah. didn't react the way a grieving mother would react. And her friend says this and her friend says that, mm-hmm. you know. And so he went in looking to pin it somehow on her. Yeah. And he was like, all these all these signs, all these things that he's pointing to as arson, like, happen just in a regular fire. Mm-hmm. Accidental fire or whatever. Like, this is just stuff that happens. Wow. And... Uh, but the jury convicted her. And again, not really based on the science, mm-hmm. based on the fact that they didn't like the way she reacted to things. Yeah. The two women on the jury, because there was only two women on her jury, mm-hmm. that's pretty much the whole reason they convicted. Because of the two women. Be- because of how they felt how that they she didn't felt. react. Yeah. Mm. Wow. While the men were like, I didn't really like that, but I needed, I needed like the science. Yeah. I was like, well, you've got two conflicting experts here. One that's an actual expert that has nothing to do with the case. Like, he just came in and was looking at stuff and was like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. no, this isn't right. Mm-hmm. While the other one is basically working for the prosecution. Yeah. So, but that's pretty much why she got convicted. Mm-hmm. Was that people just did not like the way she reacted to things. So... She, the Innocence Project takes takes her case and tries to to get her a new trial. Um, at the first trial, when her husband Ron went up there and testified, mm-hmm. this man he said that like when the uh, defense was questioning him. About this night, he was like, and keep in mind, this happened in 89, mm-hmm. and the trial was in 1993. Okay. I don't, I don't really think about that. I don't really remember. I put that all behind me. Wow. The death of his three children. Yeah. I put that all behind me. Hmm. And the fact that I his... don't really think about it anymore. Yeah. I was like, well, what, what do you mean you don't think? Well, it's like spilt milk. Wow. I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Most right. people think about their children every day. Uh-huh. And yeah. especially if they died in such a horrible manner. Right. You know, and he's just like, you know, it's like spilt milk. <sighs> he just, he just gotta, he just gotta keep on trucking. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's like, okay. Yeah. So th- he basically saved her from the death penalty uh-huh. because people were like, oh, he had something to do with it. <laughs> Yeah, with comments like that. Yeah, like, like, yeah, they, they, who's they, not reacting right now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
And she was obviously, like, when he said that about the kids, she was upset. She was like, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, she doesn't show a whole lot of emotion, but she was she was upset. Yeah. But, yeah, she was just like, yeah, he said that on trial. Like, that's, that was, his, he was just like, oh, you know, it's like spilt milk. Oh, my gosh. I just don't think about it. I put that behind me. It was my past. So somebody else who was not even connected with the trial, this other arson investigator, investigator. was more concerned than her husband or mm-hmm. ex-husband, I'm assuming at this point. I don't know. Um, I don't think they got divorced until way later, but okay. mainly because I think he just didn't think about it. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> I guess I am still married. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I, don't think, I don't think he really, really cared all that much. So, yeah. So, he basically saved her from the death penalty because he was an un- uncaring, mm-hmm. unfeeling person. Well, I guess that was good for her. Yeah. Yeah. Except that now she has to live with the fact that her husband yeah. that she had three children with didn't really care mm-hmm. about her or the kids. Yeah. And so... Mm. um. So when they, the Innocence Project gets a hold of this, um, the guy, the expert that testified in her case that continued to champion for her Mm -hmm. was John Lentini. He was a prominent scientific fire analyst, and he reviewed all the evidence and reports and the expert testimony in Park's case, and he was the one that was like, she didn't do this. Mm-hmm. Like, it was an accident. And um, you can't have an extension cord with all these plugs plugged into it and then put boxes on top of it. You know, like, mm-hmm. you're going to start a fire. Yeah. And so what he thought happened was that the TV that they had was one of those really old big TVs with, like, the big tubes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And he was like, those suckers cause fires. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just FYI, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> and the little boy liked to go and turn on the TV in the middle of the night while everybody was asleep. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I think that's what sparked the fire was this TV. But he couldn't really prove it because when they went in there, they threw it away. Mm-hmm. They threw away all the stuff that had gone from the TV and all that because, again, the police thought, this was an accident. Mm-hmm. Like when they yeah. went in there, like this was an accident. And so he couldn't review any of that. They didn't take pictures of it or anything like that. They just threw it away. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, I think this is what happened, but I can't prove it, prove it because the evidence was thrown away Yeah, by the police. Like yes. <laughs> uh, one of the other things they said was that the little boy had run into his closet mm-hmm. and, um, he had run into the closet and the pictures showed that there was a hamper next to the closet. Mm -hmm. And so the fire investigator that went in there said that he was for sure that the closet door was closed when he saw it Mm -hmm. and that someone had put this hamper in front of the door so the little boy couldn't get out. Okay. And... Um, the guy that reviewed the evidence was like, the door was clearly opened. Ugh. Like, 
he was saying that when he went in there before they found the little boy, mm-hmm. that the door was closed. All right. That he, yeah. re- he remembers that. Uh-huh. Because nobody wrote anything down. He went in there, looked around, didn't take notes, didn't write anything down. Mm-hmm. wasn't until several days later yeah where it's like oh i heard all these awful things about her so she's a murderer yeah so now let me sit down and recollect the things that i saw right yeah yeah that and no photos this is Uh ridiculous yeah we'll take photos now that we think she's a murderer yeah but not after it happened okay and so he went on to say you know the door was open Mm -hmm. due to these patterns here and it was like this was a wicker hamper this thing burned faster than anything else yeah (laughs) you know it's just like but they think the little boy ran into the closet to hide okay and they're not sure if it was because he turned on the tv it caused a fire and he was afraid Mm -hmm. so he went into his closet or he woke up there was a fire and he ran into his closet yeah he's four right so um but they can't prove it one way or the other because a lot of the evidence was just thrown away. Mm-hmm. And nothing was documented. Wow. Yeah. And so he's the one that started a correspondence with Joanne, um, wrote to the Innocence Project, and basically since she was convicted, he had been trying to get her out. Nice. And um, he actually passed away. Mm-hmm. But his family... His daughter um, took up the cause along with him. And so she's been Joanne's, basically her only family, Aww. was that she um, she believes in her innocence. And so she's mm-hmm. basically the, the one that puts money on her books and is trying to get her, trying to get her out. The husband, of course, doesn't care and yeah. none of her family cares, so... this person is the only one that's that's there for her that's sad and so the innocence project got a hold of the the files and it took several years for them to actually take on her case okay um there wasn't a lot that they could do when they first got it Mm um there was still some conflicting science and so they were like, I don't know if this is going to get any traction just yet. And so I think in 2015, they reviewed the case again. And then they were like, okay, there's some clear, you know, science, scientific findings that a lot of this stuff that they were 100% sure of in 1993 was indicators of arson mm-hmm. have now been debunked. Okay. So let's get this in front of a judge and see if we can get her out. Uh-huh. And so they actually, it took several years for that to happen. And in 2018, they took it to, to a judge mm-hmm. and they had their own, they had actually, I think, like two or three different arson um, investigators mm-hmm. that were sitting there saying, this was not arson. Like she did not set this fire. Yeah. And the guy that, had testified for the prosecution, he had retired forever ago when someone else had taken his position mm-hmm. and he took his position. Like he was like, this person did this on purpose. <sighs> mm. Yeah. And so when they first 
brought the case to the prosecutor who's, you know, um, I don't remember how old she is, but she's fairly young. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Innocence Project, Raquel Cohen is the lawyer for the Innocence Project that was um, doing all this for Joanne. Sent her the files, sent her the evidence that she had, and was basically just like, hopefully she'll look at it and be like, oh, we messed up. Mm-hmm. And so let's see what we can do about this. Maybe reduce her sentence to where she's already served yeah. her time. Sure. Um, so what she does, um, what the prosecutor Jerez does, is she takes the, the file and takes it to her investigator, to mm-hmm. her fire investigator, and is basically like, if this is legit, then we'll work something out. Mm-hmm. And if not, then we won't. Like, mm-hmm. we'll take it to trial. And so he looks at it, and he says that not only was this totally done on purpose, but this woman is a serial arsonist and hasn't been caught until now. Oh, no. So she, and it's just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so she takes it to, to trial. They have to go uh-huh. to trial. Um, the first half of the, the trial, or I guess it's more of a hearing because it's just a judge. There's no jury. Mm-hmm. So the first part of the hearing, it's the Innocence Project, the defense, putting on their case. Mm-hmm. And the judge seems to really, like, be on their side. Mm-hmm. Like, he seems to be really annoyed mm-hmm. with the prosecution a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, there was times when she would ask a question and her the um, defense's witness would be like, what? <laughs> you yeah. know, like, what are you asking me? Like, you know, and the judge would say something to her like Uh i think one of the things that he kept saying to her was you're not going to get a perry mason moment out of this let's Uh move on oh my gosh okay (laughs) and so the innocence project was you know raquel cohen was like okay well this might actually you know go in our favor and the prosecution Mm -hmm. was like oh no like this is he's obviously on their side Mm -hmm. and so then um they put on all this evidence about how basically what they thought in the 89 to 93 about arson wasn't correct. There's been a lot of science and investigations that have been done and a lot of things have changed Mm -hmm. since then. And the prosecution, their entire thing was there really hasn't been all that many changes. That was their argument. Okay. And so then they got their experts to come up and basically say, you know, there wasn't some big fire revolution. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, some things have changed. Of course, it's it's science. You know, you do more investigating, you find out more. Mm-hmm. But yeah. all this stuff, though some of it is not correct, doesn't mean that she didn't set this fire. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so prove that she did. They can't prove one way or the other is basically what that comes down to because they don't have the evidence anymore because it was thrown away. Yes. There was no photographs of it or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So they have all kinds of evidence where they're like, this doesn't mean this, but we can't for sure say that it was the plug-in strip that had a million different things plugged in. We can't say that it was the TV for sure. 
Like, because all these things are gone and we can't test it. We can't. So it kind of sounds like to me at this point that you can't prove one way or the other. So Mm -hmm. that maybe she should get off her time served. Yeah. Okay. So what happens? She doesn't. She doesn't get off? Mm -mm. The judge in November of 2018 ruled against her, stating that not much has changed in the science to justify a new trial. Wow. And so she's been in prison since 1993. She's still there? And she's still there. Oh, Oh my And basically, um, the book ends with the... Raquel Cohen, her attorney, basically trying to see if she can't get $100,000 put together mm-hmm. so she can get someone to completely recreate the apartment, furnishings and all, mm-hmm. and set that sucker on fire. Hmm. So then they can say, these patterns happened. Like, there was a short right here where we think the short happened that yeah. caused the fire, and this is what it looks like. Yeah. Do you see how this looks exactly like these pictures? Mm-hmm. And so that's her that's her hope is that she can file an appeal, have this experiment done and be able to do that, but it's gonna cost her a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. At least. Yeah. So what do you think? Well, I think Yeah. I think that they went in there with an a formed opinion of her mm-hmm. which i don't think is very scientific right and they did what they did to fit their narrative mm-hmm. and one of the reasons that I, I think this is because some of the early responders that 19 year old kid that showed up to yeah. try to help out his entire like they never called him to testify the prosecution did never really called him to testify because his story didn't fit their narrative yeah mm-hmm the police officer that tried to get in there that the neighbor, the next door neighbor saw, like he was watching the, this police officer trying to get into this house, you mm-hmm. know? Um, oh, and everybody, everybody wanted to be a freaking hero. They exaggerated their stories mm-hmm. to, to make them seem heroic. <laughs> and I'm like, you're, you're a police officer. Like you're, you're trying to do the right thing. Yeah. I broke the window and I went into the house and I couldn't see the kids and it got too hot. So I had to jump out while the neighbor's like, uh, you tried to break the window. And then when you did, like if it, it was too hot and you couldn't get in there. Uh huh. But now you're crawling in through the window, going into the burning building. Uh, yeah. I was like, and they, and they all like changed their stories to try to make them seem like they were more heroic. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you were obviously trying to do the right thing. Yeah. You know, it was like. Why embellish it? Yeah, now you have to embellish your story. Yeah. Well, and it, and it kind of goes along with what you were saying about it being so hot that he, they tried to go in and they have all their gear on and it was too hot for them. Well, the so. firefighters, you know, they, they went in there. One guy went in there with his hose and was just, oh. you know, trying to put out as much as he could to make his way in there. Mm-hmm. And. He couldn't. He do it. he couldn't. Like there was a lot of other people that a lot of other firefighters that had to start mm-hmm. dousing the house to be able to to actually get in there. Yeah, the police officer was the one that was trying to get in. Like he went ran around the back, mm-hmm. broke one of the windows with his flashlight, 
Okay. And, then, and so one of the things that the that the arson investigator that Lentini said was that so when she opened the be- the bedroom door mm-hmm. to try to get into to her kids and all that fire was there and she couldn't she left that door open ran out the front door left that door open so oxygen got into the house and which caused the fire to really take off okay when the police officer ran around the back he in his original statement mm-hmm. said that he couldn't really see in there there was a whole bunch of black smoke mm-hmm but he couldn't see any fire. He just saw a bunch of black smoke. Yeah. So he broke the window, letting oxygen in, and then all this fire came at him. Yeah. And so he couldn't get in. Mm-hmm. Before he switched his story to he crawled in through the window, and then the fire got to him. Yeah. And so, and several people had to be treated for, you know, breathing in all that smoke. Mm-hmm. Because several people did honestly try to get in there and save these kids yeah but some of the earlier test those some of the earlier statements weren't used because it didn't fit the narrative that the yeah arson guy was trying to to say is what happened well and you know you think about the mom in that situation if she had gone to try to get the garden hose and tried to put something out Instead of going to get help, she would have been criticized for that. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you go get help? Mm-hmm. So the fire department could come and, yeah. you know. So yeah, it's like a was, no-win situation. There, yeah, there was no winning for her. The only way that they would have thought that she hadn't set that fire is if she had died in that fire with them. Mm-hmm. Because no matter what she did, it wasn't the right thing to do. Yeah. And so they they talked about how she didn't smell like smoke and she didn't have a lot of you know, like her clothes weren't burned or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Well, when she woke up and she opened the door and it was too hot for her, she ran out. Yeah. So, so like there isn't what fire damage would she have? Yeah. You know, and exactly. they're like, well, because she wasn't, she, you know, she was perfectly fine. They think that she set the fires and then waited around for a little bit and then went to go get help and put on her show. Hmm. You know, and it's just like, not everything is a... Yeah. But because Kathy Dodge said that she was a terrible person uh-huh. and a terrible mom. Yeah. This is... Yeah. That's really interesting. That's a really sad story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. And to so, think about those kiddos and the... Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were so young, so little. Yeah. And... Yeah. It's just they convicted her of murder, and it doesn't really seem like that's what happened. Yeah. Did she like profess her innocence and? Oh yeah. You know and. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Like all she that was, stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, her story did change a little bit, but also embellishing her heroics. Okay. Like, and the first thing her husband says to her after their children burn to death is you killed my kids. Yeah. So her story went from, I opened the door. I tried to get in there. I couldn't get in there. I had to crawl out Mm -hmm. because her husband was blaming her for, for the deaths of their children. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, what else were you supposed to do? Right. You know, like you couldn't get in there. You tried. Mm hmm. And that's tough. I mean, being in that kind of a situation, Mm -hmm. 
it's not natural to put yourself in harm's way. Yeah. You know, you are going to go get help. Yeah. So. And, and I can see both arguments there. Mm-hmm. Like, you hear your baby screaming. Yeah. You know, are you going to try to run in there and save them even though it's super hot and the the young kid that went in there with wearing his formal tuxedo mm-hmm. like he every time he tried to get closer with the fire hose like he would have to put himself out oh my god and douse himself with water yeah because that's how hot it was oh. like he wasn't like right up in there he was you know yeah. but every time he got too close he started to to catch on fire well and then you add water to the heat Mm-hmm. Which makes steam, which is just as bad. Yeah. Wow. So I think sad. she's sit- I think she's sitting there in prison for something she didn't do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Which and it doesn't sound good for them to be able to get her out either. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so it seemed like they were they were led by bad science. And no science at all. Just mm-hmm. you didn't react the way I think you should have reacted. And therefore you're guilty. Yeah. Human behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and everybody is different. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yep, and she might not have shown any emotion to strangers, you know? Right. She could have just, when she was alone, mm-hmm. but... Nope, everybody wants to see you cry. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I remember that from one of my other books that I read that they were wanting her to show some emotion. Mm-hmm. And she's like, no, I'm not going to cry in front of them. Mm-hmm. So so that's what happened in mine. That, yeah. That's a common thing, too. Like you were saying, <clears throat> seemed, it's like it always comes down to what people expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I've gathered from all of our all of our books that we've read is when the police have made up their mind about you, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. You know? Oh, you're not showing any emotion. You're an unfeeling monster. Therefore, you had to have done this. Yeah. Oh, look at you. You're crying. How fake. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, what is it that you want? Right. It's like, well, it doesn't really matter because I've already made up my mind about you and mm-hmm. anything you do has to fit my narrative now. Yes. And that was one of the things that one of the guys was talking about um, that testified for her at her hearing uh-huh. was none of this information needs to needs to be known by fire investigators. Why do they need to know that her friend said this about her exactly i was like they should just go in there without any knowledge of what Mm -hmm. who this person is or what yeah and come out and tell me if this fire like how this fire started Mm -hmm. it's like i don't even want them to tell me that it was accidental or not like this is how the fire started and then the rest of that is up to the investigators yes it's like the the police and so on but to have a real scientific outcome mm-hmm. so they can't be biased right and so you telling this arson investigator and that's something that in all the scientific fields the forensic science field is really the only one where the cops show up and say here's all this evidence 
I think this person did this, this, and this, mm-hmm. you know, let me know those fingerprints match. Thanks. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and people are people like, oh, this person did this and said this and so on. Oh, look at that. The fingerprints match. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, they don't need to know that. They need to be able to sit down, look at things objectively and say, this fire started here because of this. If you find that those wires were tampered with, all right then. But. Well, you're going to love my book. (laughs) So, Dawn. Yes. I, I imagine there's no questioning the guilt of your the culprits in your book is that correct well you know i try not to know i mean i try to just read my book without Uh knowing what happened and it was kind of kind of up in the air yeah Mm -hmm. yes so we'll get into that here at the end but yeah uh, yes they were both found guilty um so this is a story or the life of um Kenneth Bianchi, Bianchi, and Bianchi. I think it's, it's Bianchi. Bianchi. Okay, and um, his cousin Angelo Bueno, Buono, B O U N O. Buono. Is that right? I think it's Buono. Buono. Yeah. All right. So Angelo and Kenneth uh, are cousins and um, Kenneth is uh, adopted into the family um, his he, he was his parents weren't able to take care of him so you know he was adopted and he was real young when he was adopted 10 10 months old um, but he was still kind of like not a good kid mm-hmm. he was a chronic liar and he just was kind of getting into trouble and little things, you know, like lying about stuff, obviously. Um, and that was, you know, just something that happened throughout his life. And Angelo was older than him and lived in California. So um, Kenneth grew up in Rochester, New York. And so he... I've, I've heard conflicting stories based on what the book says, uh, he wasn't making anything of himself. Mm-hmm. And so he needed to make a change. And so his mom worked it out that he could go and live with Angelo for a while. So I found out a little bit later reading some different articles. So, you know, who knows? This was an interview with uh, Bianchi uh, when he was in prison. Said that, no, I did not go out there to live with him and to move in with him. I went out there to visit and just to stay with him for mm-hmm. a few months. So he, he gets out to California and moves in with uh, Angelo and his son. And, uh, you know, things just start happening. They want to do different things and make some little money. And um, Kenny can't find a job. And, you know, it's Angelo's getting tired of him sitting around mm-hmm. and ready for him to get out of the house and stuff. And um, anyway, Kenny ends up moving out I think before this really starts to happen and the first thing that they ended up doing was deciding they're going to be pimps and they're going to make some extra cash 
So they go and they find the, uh, this girl, and her name was Sabra Hannon, and um, they conned her into coming back to his house and they're like oh you're going to be a model and you're going to make all this money this $500 a week and all this stuff and they end up locking her in one of the rooms at um, Angelo's house and um, making her prostitute for them and so they would have people come. Uh, Angelo had his business running out of uh, the garage behind his house. And so they would um, say, here's a picture of this girl, you know, and then the customers would go up for a little while and they would mm-hmm. make money off of it. Um, and during this time, well, then anyway, they they told Sabra that if she got somebody else, um, that they would let her go sooner because I think they'd kind of contracted her and made her sign something that said that she was committed to them for a year. And um, if she didn't do that, there were like huge things that they would do that Mm -hmm. she did not want happening. Blackmail basically. And I I don't remember the specifics on it. So she got um, a friend of hers from Phoenix, uh, Becky Spears to come up. And um, so they were both in there. Um, together but they during this time they also beat them mm-hmm. and um, and raped them as well and when they beat them they found out somehow that you can beat somebody with a wet towel and it doesn't leave marks so that's what they would do hmm. right who would yeah. have ever thought that how would you even want to even I mean how how did you discover that? Yeah. You know, especially... Pre- pre-internet times. In, yes! Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yes, because this was 70s, late 70s. Yes. Okay, so... Um, this is happening, and... Um, so, right off the bat, when they started having sex with these girls, they would sodomize them. And um, Becky was so bad that... There was, she had to use something to keep her from going to the bathroom, just mm-hmm. leaking out because it had been so bad. And um, so they somehow get into a situation where they are now letting them out of the house to go to somebody's house mm-hmm. to do their services. Right. Um, and before this happens, they took them to uh, an orgy. Um, they had these two girls, and they had, uh, I don't know, I think there was like seven to nine different men who came in for this um, event. And, and some of them were prominent men in the community. Mm-hmm. City councilmen were on there and different people. And I think it's never said so in the rest of this book, but I believe that that is part of something that was key later on and i'll Mm -hmm. try to make that connection in a little bit um so they have this um this orgy and then you know they all go back and so now becky is goes out to a client and he's a rich guy that doesn't normally get his girls this way is what it says Uh um it's like okay and he he likes to talk to the girls so he's starting to talk with her finding out where she's from and you know just some information about her and her story comes out that she's basically being 
kept captive at this house mm-hmm. and she's being raped and she's being forced to do this stuff. And um, he believes her and helps her. Hmm. So a car is supposed to come back and pick her up um, at a certain time. And so he takes her and um, keeps her somewhere safe for the rest of the night. And then the next day puts her on a plane back to Phoenix. And they're scared to death because, mm-hmm. you know, Angelo says, I know people and we will find you and we'll kill you. And so that's why Sabra doesn't leave. So Becky is now basically safe, but they come back and threaten her again with, you know, we know all these, all this stuff and we, other people and we can kill you. And so um, she ends up staying there for a little while longer, um, but then she, she does escape. Um so they were actually, believe it or not, the lucky ones. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so they decided that their botched pimping, uh, they're really angry that this has happened, and they want to get what they call a trick list. And so they contact another prostitute. Uh, her name was Deborah Noble, and they were bringing her this Uh, or bringing them this list and sold it to him. And when she came, she brought this other um, prostitute. I I believe she was a waitress also. Her name was Yolanda Washington. And they sold the list to these two, um, Kenny and Angelo. Well, pretty quickly they realized it was a fake list. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they were really mad. So they were like, oh, yeah, we're going to go and we're going to get this Deborah Noble and we're going to teach her a lesson. Well, Angelo says, no, we're going to get Yolanda Washington and we're going to do it to her because she's known as being there. She wasn't the one who was contacted to sell the list, kind of scare them a little bit mm-hmm. more into... Send a message. Yes. Um, so they do. They find Yolanda and their their big thing throughout... Um, 10 women is, well, no, I can't even say women, children and women, was to um, pretend to be a cop. So initially, um, I don't think they had a badge, but they would uh, approach them and say, hey, you know, you're pimping on the street, or, you know, you're prostituting mm-hmm. on the street, whatever, you need to come in with us, we've got some questions for you, or whatever. And they would trick them into getting into the car, even though they knew that they really hadn't even done anything wrong. And um, they would get into the car, and they would say, okay, we just need to take you down and um, ask you some questions. And they said, <laughs> while they're in the car, they don't have cuffs on and so they say well you know just for appearance purposes and stuff and all that we and we really need to have you in cuffs so in the car they would cuff them well then it was all over Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, they would take them and and the way angelo had his house and his shop built there was an overhang a carport basically and so the surrounding buildings you couldn't see somebody getting in and out of the vehicle so and they would pretend to say, oh, yeah, this is like a safe house or this is that or whatever until they got in there. And then they would um, they would undress them, um, take them up into the, uh, well, into the spare bedroom. And they would take turns with her. And um, I don't know, they would, sometimes it was one and sometimes it was the other that would go first and they would do all kinds of things. And so... Um, 
with Yolanda, they strangled her. Um, she had the, you know, marks on her wrists and her ankles, and then they had the ligature or whatever mm-hmm. marks on her mm-hmm. on her neck when she was found. <clears throat> well, they left her naked on the hill. So after they did all that, they also cleaned up very well. Angela was a very big stickler on being clean. And so... Germaphobe? Like he thought he he was going to get sick or afraid of germs? Well, I don't know because it wasn't just like through this process. His whole house was immaculate. Was he like OCD sort of? I think so. And he he was just really big on that. And Mm -hmm. so I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. yeah, one of those two things. And so... And obviously, they don't want to be caught at this point. So mm-hmm. he was right. really big on, okay, let's put them onto this plastic or whatever. So while one of them was taking their turn, the other one um, would typically, Angela would typically go through the purse and take all their stuff, wrap it up, and throw it in the dumpster out back. So none of their stuff was ever found. Um, so Yolanda is, fi- Yolanda is actually not even <coughs> found. Um, I think the second one was a 15-year-old. Um, I don't have her name. There were so many. There were 10 girls in all. And, and it was basically the same MO throughout the whole mm-hmm. thing. Um, they would, you know, run the cop thing and um, get them back to the house. And then they would lay low for just a little bit. But they, they ended up doing four different women slash children in a month Wow. So yeah, there for a while it was it was quite uh, quite a few girls. Um, after they got their kicks with the whole strangling and oh, let's strangle and then let's release it a little bit so that she comes back and then um, oh, do you want to have sex with her while we're doing this kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And then oh, now she's dead. Um, we're going to have sex with with them. And that's where the sodomy, they did that uh, at this time also. But that's actually called necrophiliaism or necrophilia. Mm-hmm. Necrophilia. Yeah. 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 Mm. I, I, yeah, okay. I can't even go there. It's just ridiculous. Um, so after that, then they decide, oh, well, let's try other ways to kill them. So we're going to put a bag over their head and, um, well, before the bag over the head, what did, no, because they tried to suffocate her mm-hmm. as well as the strangulation at the same time. Um, and then I think the next thing they did was injected one of the girls with household cleaner mm-hmm. and that didn't kill her. So they went back to the strangulation and then one of the other um, other times they tried doing um, electrocution and that didn't work. Uh, and so they kind of tried to do a combination of electrocution and um, strangulating and, you know, they were very just brutal. So they completely they abandoned any pretense of it being about money. At this point, they're just doing it for kicks. Yeah. Yeah. And basically what would happen is, is um, Angela would say, I'm bored. You know, it's like, I, I need to, let's, I need some action. And mm. it, it comes out that he had a really, his parents were divorced. And I don't know, he, I want to say he didn't like his mother, but he didn't. 
but she was still his mom. Mm-hmm. And um, he used the C word a lot in in talking about any women. Mm-hmm. But it was because of his mom that um, she, I think, had uh, sexual relations with several men. And so he saw that and he just thought that that was, that all women were just mm-hmm. horrible because of that. And that's all that they were worth. Um, he, uh, Angelo actually had been married previously and had, um, had kids. And one of the ladies that he was married to, I can't remember how many times, if it was just once or, or what, but, um, he was with somebody who had another daughter and she finally broke away from him because he was getting, a little too friendly with her. And they Mm -hmm. think that he probably did have relations with her. And then he ended up having his own daughter. And I wonder about that relationship as well. And, and because he says some things in the books that, that there were relations and he took his turn with her as did his other sons. Oh, Yeah, I mean, I, I can't even believe that this guy, I mean, it's just amazing. Um, so Kimberly Martin was actually a call girl um, working for an agency where mm-hmm. she would go out and she, I think, kind of probably felt it was a little safer to work in that kind of an instance. But she um, got a call from Kenny and Angelo one night and... Um, they actually called from a payphone from the library. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, so in 1978, all of a sudden, they stopped. The, the killing stopped. Um, and I think what happened was the relationship between Kenny and... Um, and Angela was getting a little bit strained. Mm. He knew that Kenny, Angela did knew that he was a liar and that, um, you know, he actually had uh, diplomas, mail order diplomas, that he was a psychiatrist. And so he would, he actually had a job with another psychiatrist being like a family counselor. Oh I know. <laughs> I mean, it's just ridiculous the things that these guys got away with. And Kenny was working as a security guard and he tried several times to get onto the police department. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, you know, they finally get a badge in their, you know, their costume. Yes. And so that, you know, it makes it easier to get the girls and all that. So they were mad because obviously Kenny and Bianchi about the whole pimping thing because they weren't getting any more money. They were living pretty good on that extra in, in, info. So there were some girls who, who got away. And one of them was, um, <laughs> funny enough, um, a girl that he recognized um angelo angelo recognized and it was the daughter of a german um, film actor his name was peter lore 
and 44 years earlier in Germany had uh, achieved international fame and Hollywood offers for his role as a rapist and murderer of little girls. Huh. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's, wow. (laughs) But she somehow had the foresight to say that one of the girls, when they saw that it was cops that stopped them, one of the girls just ran. Because they'd just done something that they, you know, weren't supposed to be doing. But it wasn't really bad kind of thing. They thought that it was bad, and I don't remember what it was. Um, And then so she stayed and talked with them. But then she said, oh, yeah, my ride is just over there. And there was a car sitting over there with the lights on or something. And so they were like, okay. And they let her go. But that was not her ride. Yeah. <laughs> she totally she was just like fibbed on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so during this time, Kenny has uh, a son. He um, impregnates this lady, uh, Kelly Boyd, I think her name is. And so he decides to name the child Ryan. And it was the same name that he used to get Kimberly Martin um, when he attracted her. That's what he told her his name was. But it says he kept that little joke to himself. He did not tell her. She thought it was because of Ryan's Hope, the soap opera. So when they killed one of the prostitutes, or when they 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 didn't kill her, they had one come over and then kicked her out. They weren't going to pay her, and um, so then they were started getting like threatening calls and stuff, and they they weren't going to do anything about it. Well, then they it really kind of got really threatening, and so they got the police over there, and um, I don't think anything ever happened out of that. Darn it! But so anyway. <laughs> so they call a prostitute. She comes over. Uh-huh. That's her thing. They refuse to pay her. Uh-huh. Kick her out. Uh-huh. They start getting threatening calls, so they call the police. Yes, that's crazy, <laughs> right? So they, they were they were getting calls from actual pimps. Yes, and, and yeah, thugs or whatever. Uh huh. And then they call the police. They call the police. Yeah, that's just nuts. Yeah. Okay, so there was somebody who had actually telephoned the police about seeing somebody that she was sure was the Hillside Stranglers. And they didn't believe her. They didn't take her seriously. Because they were getting all kinds of phone calls. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they were. Yeah. At this point, they are known as the, the Hillside Stranglers? Yes, at this point, they have killed enough people in the same way and so they but those people were found and they found the the, the ligature marks and everything mm-hmm. yes did they always leave them on the same hill no they were put in different places but towards the end they realized once you looked at it on a map right where their comfort zone was yep and they did you it could, you could draw a circle based mm-hmm. on where his house was angelo's house and then um the other places were places that he was very familiar with. There was a dump site. There was um, a place by where he used to live, mm-hmm. by where his um, ex used to live. And it's like, oh, let's put this here. Yeah. You know? I mean, 
And these poor women, they left them, most of them out there with no clothes on. The, the girls, there were two girls, um, 12 and 14, who were found. And they were found in the dump area. And this boy just that's where he would go to play to kind of get away and you know he could Mm -hmm. search and find stuff and he thought initially that they were mannequins Mm -hmm. and so he went up there and um until he started pulling on them and even the feel of them because they'd been there for a few days um and then he ran and got his um brother and he he was older like 17 and finally they realized that they were bodies Mm. Um, so basically the police, she had called several times and they said, you know, they basically placated her and gave her the, uh, a ton of voice, which was quit bothering us, Mm -hmm. you know? So Kenny was really good. He was actually brilliant. He had an IQ of 135, wow. which puts him like in the top 1% uh-huh. in that respect. And uh, he was really good at writing and creative writing. Um, and he was a good liar. So put all that together. Yeah. And he did a great job of writing a resume. <laughs> nice. So much so that he got a job at a hospital. Right? I just... Man. 70s i know just like mail order some diplomas (laughs) write a good resume and bam i know you can can call me dr kenny now (laughs) i'm like really that's what i put here really he had no experience whatsoever Mm -hmm. in doing anything and he's like in this job of testing stuff at the hospital (laughs) and he does such a good job that he was given greater responsibilities at higher wages. Got a promotion. Yes! <laughs> <sighs> okay, so they actually visit Kenny at his apartment because one of the girls was said to, uh, had lived in the same apartment complex because mm. it was one of his previous girlfriends. And um, so... They go over there, and this is really about the time where they're starting to get a computer system that um, will compare mm-hmm. uh, information from different situations and try to um, pull things together, but it didn't work. It was ridiculous. So, um, anyway, not the lead officer, but somebody else. They had a lead that was called in, and so they said, well, okay, we're going to go check it out. So they had no information about other killings or Mm -hmm. this or that. So they just go in there and ask a few basic questions. And um, basically the the questions that they had were so stupid. I mean, they were just Mm -hmm. right on surface questions that um, if they'd looked, ask him to see his driver's license, he had something on the back of his driver's license that would have keyed them into something. Mm. If they had asked, um, A couple of other things. I can't even, you know, see what it is right here. If they had asked a couple of those more, just a little bit deeper questions, yeah, um, they would have been on his trail at that point. Well, obviously, they didn't. 
asked those questions. And he's bragging now to Angelo that, oh, I've talked to the cops three times mm-hmm. and they haven't, they're not on to me. It's like, I'm such a good liar yeah. that, and that's one of the things they wanted to be on TV and well, Bianchi did, Bianchi. Bianchi. Um, so Angelo pushes him into going to Bellingham. Like, get out of here. <laughs> Which is when things kind of slow down. And um, I think they ended up coming back. He comes back and then ends up going back to Bellingham, um, where his, the father, or sorry, the mother of his child is. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of on and off. She won't marry him. She just doesn't feel right about that. Yeah. He's not responsible enough. Yeah, because that's why. <laughs> um. So he does get back up there in Bellingham, and what does he do? But he gets a job for a security company, um, Whatcom Security Agency, Inc., the total security people, Captain Kenneth A. Bianchi, operations supervisor. Nice. Captain. Think about this when you have a security company taking care of your house, that there is a serial killer that (laughs) now has access to your house. I hope that that's a little different than it was in the 70s. Oh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. I'm sure there's uh, background searches and all kinds of... Well, that makes me think of the guys from Ant-Man 2. Oh, the yeah. Second one. They, they formed their own security company, but it's called X-Con. Oh. And that's and the whole premise. It's like, we're former X-Con. convicts, so we know all about security. We, we know how to break into your house, and therefore we're going to make sure no one else can break into your house. All right. Well, we want all the free pickings. Yeah. Um, so he, he moves up there. Kenny's, or um, Angelo's pushed him out. Said, you are too much, and you are going to let something leak, and you're all mm-hmm. about the publicity, so get out of here. Uh, I don't want anything to do with you. And so then that kind of hurts Kenny's feelings. It's like, yeah. hey, man, we were, you know, brothers. We were out killing and doing yeah. all this fun stuff together, and now I'm going to show Angelo that I can do it all by myself, that it wasn't <laughs> him that was the leader of this it was me and that i can do it and so he does he calls these um two women um meets them somehow and gets them to come out to one of the houses and gets one to go in with him to begin with and he just strangles her he doesn't even try to do any of the other stuff that they had done before he's just so you know have so much um adrenaline and all that Mm -hmm. and now he's got the other girl still out in the car so he goes out and gets her and brings her in and just strangles her as well um so he was so he did it so poorly that they caught him the next day but he still loaded him up and transferred him somewhere Mm -hmm. else and dumped him but um they found him found out they were onto him by the next day that it was him um oh my gosh okay So, Bianchi's caught. They realize he's got an address that's in California. Mm -hmm. And they have a hillside strangler. So, they end up calling in some doctors and decided that they were going to hypnotize. They could do two things. Yes. Always. (laughs) Hypnotize them. Right? So, they could hypnotize (laughs) or they could give give him a drug uh, that would... A truth serum. Oh, the truth serum? Yeah. So, 
Bianchi's like, okay, I really want them to hypnotize because he has done so much reading on the psychology crap that he knows all about it. (laughs) So he thinks, I cannot be hypnotized. Yes. And that's what he does. And and so um, I don't remember exactly how it's done, but the doctor says something about a second personality. And all of a sudden... He gets a second personality. Yeah. And names him Steve. <laughs> so he just listened to what they were saying. Yeah. And yeah, then just thought that he played was, into it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, um, and then another doctor comes in and kind of knows, suspects. Police officers are watching this with the doctor mm-hmm. and are like, are you kidding me? That is so fake. But no, the doctor just gets sucked in with it because he wants to be such a, you know, he wants to study multiple personalities uh-huh. and all this stuff. This is so where we like, get back to the bias. Yes. <laughs> like it's, it's fitting my purpose. It's, it's fitting my narrative. Yeah. Therefore, it must be true. Yes. Okay, so another guy comes in where he doesn't think that. He, he's, he's actually brought in to debunk the, the uh-huh. thing. And um, so he suggests that there may be more personalities, actually. And so sure enough, here comes another one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so they go through all that. And then they finally, there were one or two things that he had said that um, caught the uh, attention of the detectives who were listening to it, and they were able to piece some information together and realize that one of the names that he had used was somebody that he had stole the diploma from. Like, he had actually written uh, an ad in the paper that said, send me uh, a, for this kind of a job if you you want to apply send me your diploma and send me your transcripts and send me blah 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 so he gets this stuff from somebody and then he contacts the university and says i need you to put this on a diploma and whatever and that's how he got his diploma that at least one of them yeah and so he used that guy's name this is a very dense book there's so much stinking information here um so i don't know if i've said it or not but they um Bianchi got a plea deal that if if he would uh, testify against Angelo, that they would not make him serve his time in um, Bellingham, in Washington, actually, in Walla Walla, Washington, Mm -hmm. um, which was supposed to be really bad, more strict, yeah, uh, than the California prisons. And so he's like, okay, yeah, I'll I'll testify against Angelo. And so they're like, he's a liar. Uh How are we going to get this? Well... He starts to tell them things that were obviously not things that anybody knew. They didn't even know. They weren't reported. Yeah. And so he mentioned how they um, had started to do the electrocution or something, and there was um, some kind of marks on this, the girl's face. And mm-hmm. then the when they had injected her, one of the other girls, with something, they didn't um, see those marks, but after he mentioned it, they were able to find them and they're like, Oh yeah, there are marks on those. So he kind of was able to, um, corroborate that information. Um, the, the defense's 
not the defense. The um, okay. So initially, the district attorney decides that he's um, him and this other lawyer. They're going to try the case, and so the police officers are taking them out to try to to meet some different people and you know some. Um, witnesses that are kind of that are scared to death Mm -hmm. because she was raped when she was one of the witnesses when she was younger and so she's like scared to death because she's seen them and um anyway there were two or three different things that were situations that were like that and they wanted to drop all the charges for angelo Hmm. they're like he didn't do it they, you know, these witnesses that are not credible, we don't have the information to convict. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. And the judge was like, they need, he needs to be tried. Yeah. What am I going to do here? And he was able to, to fashion a statement that wouldn't get overturned and saying, this needs to go to trial. We're not going to do all that mm-hmm. dismissing charges and all that crap. Um, so throughout the trial, there were 329 witnesses, uh, 1,807 exhibits, 56,000 pages of transcripts. Wow. This was, at the time, this was the longest trial in California history, mm-hmm. which it lasted two years. So thinking about that and thinking about the jury, they were not sequestered, so they could go home every day. Okay, but when it came to the trial or the um, deliberation part, that's when they um, sequestered them. So while they were deliberating and trying to figure out what was going on, uh, they couldn't go home. So they were in a hotel. And this is where some information that I thought was very interesting came out that during a trial, and especially if they're sequestered through the whole thing, um, some alliances start to take place Mm -hmm. and affairs start to take place and all kinds of things start to happen with the jurors Mm -hmm. uh, because they're in close proximity with each Mm -hmm. other and they can't go home. And it's, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, So then, you know, there's alliances and, oh, I'll, you know, vote for the same way you want to Mm -hmm. vote. Really? This is somebody's life on the line. You should be able to speak your own mind and look at the evidence oh my word okay so just a quick note about the um, prosecuting attorney no no it was the defense attorney uh, because he was trying to get them off Mm -hmm. um there was a lady her name was last name was mater and she was so bold in her statements In her closing defense of Angelo, Catherine Mader was passionately contemporary. There is a core of goodness in Mr. Buono, she said, Uh, a core of humanity. He did not chase women. They came after him because he was known as a womanizer. They were like, how does he get these women? They had no idea. Yeah. It was ridiculous. Um, He was never like Bianchi, rejected by women. What if he did pimp and mistreat Sabra and Becky? No one said he was perfect. (laughs) He had many, many friends, male and female, again, unlike Bianchi. Are you kidding me? (laughs) He was a really nice guy. 
Let's just push this aside that he sodomized these girls and beat them and whatever else he did. That was a woman who said that. Uh Well, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. (laughs) My gosh. I just, in her closing statements, she said that. I can't even, yeah, it was. Okay, so then there's something else here. So he tries to justify it. She talks about Ernest Hemingway had fallen in love. Oh, because they liked young girls. Angela was in his 40s when Uh all this was going on. Um, Bianchi was younger, but still. Um, Ernest Hemingway had fallen in love with a young girl late in life. Charlie Chaplin, Chaplin liked young girls, too. And as for Angela's fondness for anal sex, Mater said, in some countries, I think somebody told me it is in Greece, anal sex is just the way that the people have sexual relations there. Someone told me that once. And about Greece? About Greece. <laughs> so I'm gonna, Good for them. I'm going <laughs> to... I'm just going to mention that right now. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and but, like Charlie Chaplin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's Ernest like, Hemingway. I'm like, yeah, Ernest Hemingway. It's like, oh, because that makes it okay because right, these other ex- guys did it. Exactly, and that's the part that gets me. Yes, it's probably true that they did, and I know that there are relationships with, the, you know, a wide range of, you know, women uh-huh. their age versus men. But as a justification that that makes it okay that he did this? Well, and I'm just like... Really? You want to hang your hat on Ernest Hemingway? (laughs) (laughs) That too, yeah. And and what I know about Charlie Chapman, it wasn't just that they were younger, like they were underage, like illegally underage. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, these are your examples. I'm like, "Uh, they're terrible people. Right! (laughs) Like just... And I can't believe that this woman is... Okay, I know she has a job. But I can't believe that she went there yeah. with that. And I really don't necessarily consider myself a feminist. But are you kidding? <laughs> anyway. So what he she was really also very um, hard on one of the uh, detectives. And she would put him down, his tactics that, you know, how he went about things. Mm -hmm. Um, And she just really gave him a hard time on the stand or, you know, when she was questioning him, trying to put him down all the time. And it really, really bothered him the way, obviously, she makes comments like this. Yeah. Um, But he did get her back. Um, And, of course, this is, you know, this is in the book. So whether it was actually spoken this way or not i don't know but she tries to apologize to him um i hope you're not mad at me for attacking you during the trial i was just doing my professional job will you forgive me and they're in an elevator and he calls her by name and says i wouldn't forgive you on the day i die you were an unethical c (laughs) and the reason i'm calling you a c is because i know you like it Wow. So he did that in the elevator <laughs> where the, it was a full elevator yeah, at the time. People could hear him. Yes. To get back at her. I'm like, yes, you go. <laughs> That's an elevator pitch. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Um 
Yeah, so I guess it did kind of make me mad a few times, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, really? So, uh, anyway, they get convicted. It was kind of up and down for a little while mm-hmm. because they were really trying to get Angelo off, that he didn't do it. The jury was out for, um, I think, a little over a week. Wow. Um, yeah. He was not convicted of Yolanda um, Washington's death. Hmm. Um but he was convicted for nine counts. And during the, um, it, they were out for over, I don't know, they were out for a long time trying to decide. And they said, well, you can come back and tell us when you decide on one count at a time, mm-hmm. if that's what it takes, because they were wanting at least to get him on right. something. And so after they came back, the they didn't um, give him the death penalty. And I think part of the reason they didn't give him the death penalty is because Kenneth... Uh, Kenny had already gotten a plea bargain mm-hmm. that said that he would get um, life, and I think he got six counts of life, um, and it would be served in California. Well, since he wasn't going to get the death penalty, they didn't feel like Angelo should get the death penalty. Mm-hmm. The judge, the judge made this whole case work because there was a, a toward like the last couple weeks of the trial, something came up where they were going to. Um, it almost got dismissed after almost two years of trial. There was going to be a mistrial? Yes. Mm. I mean, it was just ridiculous, um, the things that the defense was trying to, to do. Um, but at the end, they gave the sentence, and the judge said, if at any time in the history of capital punishment, this is the case that should have been mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. given the death penalty. Because of what they did. Mm-hmm. It's just ridiculous. So kudos to that judge. Um, I do want to point out that the district attorney who wanted to throw this case out, his last name was Vandekamp. The Beans. Mm-hmm. Vandekamp. Vandekamp. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, Angela died in 2002 natural causes and death are in in prison and somebody made the comment that you know god gave the final death penalty thought that was a appropriate however uh bianchi is still alive still in prison his last parole was um hearing was in uh 2010 and it was denied uh he is married he got married in 1989 while he was in prison to a pen pal that was writing to him. Yeah. And um, her name is Shirley Joyce Book. And she had previously pursued Ted Bundy. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. And I guess that didn't work out because he ended up marrying his childhood yeah. sweetheart. And had a kid with her. Yeah. yeah. While on conjugal visits. <laughs> I don't think those were conjugal visits. I think the guards just looked the other way. Uh, I, don't think, I don't think they actually had permission to... To, to do, do that. that. <laughs> okay. I think the guards were just like, meh. Yeah. <laughs> to look over here. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So, um, so yeah, I tried to find um, some, a current picture of um, Bianchi and I finally found one and he had done an interview with uh, the forensic examiner and it was interesting because they were just trying to fill in the holes uh-huh. During this, you know, yeah, all these questions that they still had. It was not about guilt or innocence. And let me just say, 
Bianchi is proving himself again a liar because he's just not answering questions mm-hmm. and saying things that I don't think were true. But anyway, I saw a picture of him and yeah, it was. Just, <laughs> like, Meh. Yeah, I mean, I, and then it, it, he does look a lot different than he did in the 70s. Obviously, don't we yeah. all? Um, well, with that. <laughs> Definitely. Totally. <laughs> okay, my 80s born children here. <laughs> uh, no bell bottoms for you, huh? If you can find some for me, I'll, I'll wear them. <laughs> now you would, yeah, because they're cool again. Yeah. <laughs> um, I lost my train of thought. What was I saying? <laughs> oh, he, how he looked. He was, you know, he had a mustache in the 70s and just that mm-hmm. whole yeah, staying alive look, I guess. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> and Angelo was... Um, very Italian looking. Mm-hmm. I don't have, he's very thin. Um, but it's just, yeah, you take one look at him and you're like, yeah, that's an Italian. And I know you judging people by the way they look. <laughs> I'll have to show you a picture and you can just tell me. <laughs> what do you think his heritage is? <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Um, anyway, so that's my book in a nutshell. It was it was very disturbing. Yeah. How how brutal they were to these women. Yeah. And the the girls that they got to prostitute for them probably had I say they were the lucky ones because they escaped. They but they endured it for a lot longer. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't endure in endure that torture. Uh, as far as the killing part of it, Mm -hmm. but they were still beaten. They were still raped and all of, they would do all this in a night. Mm -hmm. So they would go ahead and pick up the girl. They would take her back to the house, um, you know, and do everything. And, and it was done. Um, but these other girls, they had to endure it for a long time Mm -hmm. and then live with it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And especially before they were caught, live with the threat of being yeah. found by them. And mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Wow. Yeah, Dawn, that was really disturbing. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> that was probably the most disturbing of all the things. Of that all the things we've done so far, we've read and talked about. I don't know. Some of the stuff, and the one that I read, the people heat darkness. There was some pretty messed up stuff. In That's that true. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There were some things they found in that that they thought was related to that case that was completely unrelated, but was really messed up that I didn't talk about. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, and that's what's that's what's scary. I know that this happened in the seventies, but people are out there like this, mm-hmm. and it is just like that's the scary part. Don't be gullible. Yes. Well, I would, you know, like you were saying, the way they, you know, they told her, like, oh, you just come, you're going to be a model. It reminds me of the frozen ground, mm-hmm. what he did in that. And I remember reading that that's the way a lot of sex tra- traffickers oh, get yeah. their victims is they advertise, like, oh, you know, make this much money and, you know, it's mm-hmm. this modeling job or whatever it is. And they, you know, providing like some kind of a job or a job where you travel or mm-hmm. whatever. And that's how they, 
to think of people. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I remember moving down to Texas and reading about jobs like that, you know? Yeah. And you, thankfully, I'm well, I say thankfully, things are different now, but it's just a different mode. Mm-hmm. You know, it used to be the newspaper you'd look for jobs in, but now it's on the computer or yeah. different places. Oh, I just, I'm, I'm, the reason I think about it is because all the time we, you know, we just drive into work right here in town and we see those little signs out that say, make $10,000 in two weeks. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> if, that was, if that was a thing yeah. that you could actually do, there'd be a lot more. Be. Yeah. Yeah. There'd be a lot more people with $10,000. Like if, it, if it sounds suspicious, then it's yeah, probably, probably shady yeah. as yeah. all get out. Yes. <laughs> yes. It says people still fall for it. Mm-hmm. I it's, know. It's, talk to your children. Mm-hmm. Talk to your girls and talk to your boys and tell them this is not okay. And like you said, it is, um, if it sounds too good to be true, mm-hmm. probably is. Yep. Okay. And some rando with a camera telling you that they're a fashion photographer. Like, come on now. Right. <laughs> and they can still fake mm-hmm. credentials. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah, they can order a diploma. Right? Yeah. <laughs> well, now with the internet, it's so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> I can just make a diploma. Yeah. And I can just, I can just go time. to Michael's and get some very nice, fancy cardstock, mm-hmm. print it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dip it in some tea, make it look all, like, official, and bam. Frame that sucker. Now yeah. I'm a PhD in whatever. Make something up. Yep. Something really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Do we like murder? <laughs> I don't I don't think I do anymore. No. <laughs> it's very, very disturbing. Wow. But maybe we'll help somebody with our stories today, yes. Denise. I hope so. Anyway, not that that's why we're doing this. We like to laugh at murderers because they're in jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Typically. Right. It's like you're an idiot. Typically, yeah. But <laughs> And just the whole situation half the time. Yeah. Really? Yeah. What? <laughs> so. All right. I guess that's a wrap, huh? Mm-hmm. All right. We've well, been listening to, <clears throat> to Do We Like Murder? And we will catch you next time.